Threat researchers at LexisNexis Risk Solutions have identified a new type of account takeover fraud known as sleeper fraud, which is evading most banking institutions' fraud detection systems. As part of this emerging scheme, fraudsters take over bank accounts with information they know about the account holders, either from social media or PII breaches. From there, the attackers schedule fraudulent transactions that appear to be legitimate, thus flying under the radar of customers and banks' detection for weeks and even months. Here, Greg Shelton, director of first-party collections within the Financial Services Division of LexisNexis Risk Solutions, talks about this emerging fraud scheme, why it is so cleverly getting past banking institutions and their customers, and steps institutions should be taking to ensure they are adequately addressing this emerging risk. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. So, Greg, I gave a brief synopsis of what sleeper fraud is, but could you give our audience an overview of how you define sleeper fraud? Sure. Thank you very much, Tracy. Sleeper fraud is one of the terms now being used within the banking community to identify a type of fraud. We're all familiar with lost and stolen version. We're all familiar with identity fraud. But sleeper fraud has its own unique characteristics. And there are basically two types. The first type that typically is identified is when someone opens an account, it's more tactical in nature. They open the account with the intent at some point to use the full credit limit and or other accounts, open other accounts that would be used as part of a fraud. And they may actually maintain that account in a very positive way for as much as a year but with, again, the full intent being at some point they intend to run up both the limit or use all of the available credit to fraud the bank uh, with the intent to never pay. The second type of fraud, and the one that we're going to focus on today, is a little bit more sophisticated. It's typically committed by an organized network. It is committed or perpetrated through manipulated identity of a good customer where the information, the PII of that good customer is compromised. The limits are typically run up immediately within a month or so. And it's cross-functional, meaning that if they have information about a credit card, they will typically have information about checking accounts as well, direct deposit accounts. And this type of fraud, because it's from an organized group or network, is pretty much a function of what we're seeing and reading in the newspapers about the extent of major data breaches of large financial institutions across the United States. There has been approximately 4,500 major data breaches in the last five years. And that has essentially affected almost 845 million consumer records. So all of us have the potential of being victims of sleeper fraud. So Greg, one point to highlight here, you mentioned that in this more sophisticated type of account takeover scheme known as sleeper fraud, that the attackers are actually manipulating the identities of actual individuals. Are they using synthetic identities or does this involve actual identity theft? No, this involves actual identity theft where because of all of the data breaches that I've just mentioned, what happens is that the perpetrators of these data breaches will literally have at their disposal millions of consumer records. And again, it's not just coming from one data breach. It is now somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,500. There is an entire black market where our information is being sold after the fact. 
And as a result of that, what happens is these organizations that are either perpetrating or buying our information will literally start changing our addresses with our bank. They may change our phone numbers. They may change a number of different things about the true profile of the good customer, all with the intent that at their point and time of choosing, they activate that account with the intent to commit fraud. And so our information as a good customer is manipulated prior to the fraud. Once the fraud has been committed and the balance has been charged to our account, or if it's a checking account, the checks have been obtained and used in fraudulent manner, the only time that the bank realizes that there is a fraud element to the balance is when they try to reach the customer when the account goes delinquent. And that's at the point where there is no point of contact. The balance has been completely run up. All of a sudden, they start seeing return mail and the like. And to them, the bank at that particular point, they think that they're dealing with a collection account. But in fact, what they have on their hands is a fraudulent account and typically sleeper fraud. So Greg, tell us how LexisNexis discovered sleeper fraud. Well, Tracy, LexisNexis hasn't discovered sleeper fraud. Sleeper fraud has been around probably for about five years or so. But what we are looking at is a problem that has evolved as a result of the conditions I just mentioned. It's pervasive. It's throughout the United States. It's throughout almost every bank of any size. And again, it's a function of compromised PII, the personal information of consumers, where most times, and that's the difficulty of identifying sleeper fraud, neither the consumer or the financial institution are aware of the fact that the account has been taken over for the purpose of committing a fraud. What LexisNexis Risk Solutions is attempting to do is to link between the changes of information on an account and the likelihood that there's fraudulent activity involved. You mentioned that sleeper fraud is quite pervasive and that it's impacted most banking institutions in the U.S., at least most of the larger banking institutions. What about globally? Is this a scheme that's impacting institutions in other markets across the world? Yes, absolutely it is. Matter of fact, one of the recent reports that came out mentions that the U.K. is also dealing with the same problem. Again, as I mentioned earlier, there are estimates that indicate that in the United States next year, 2016, the estimated first-party fraud of which sleeper fraud is a subset of will cause losses up to about $28 billion. In the UK, they have a similar issue, maybe not to the same extent as the US, but a significant portion of the fraud identified in the UK has been linked to sleeper fraud as well. It's just a matter, again, of the type of situation that exists with account takeover, with data breaches, that this is a fairly global issue and that any bank has to identify these accounts and be aware of the problem as it exists. Greg, do you have any idea how many banking institutions have been victimized by this type of fraud? Tracy, the problem with that is that most banks have an issue with identifying this type of fraud. That inherently is the issue. By definition, because there's no point of contact, many banks can't even identify the fact that it's even fraud. But since it's such a pervasive issue and it's across the board, and it has the two type scenario, as I mentioned earlier, one where it's tactical and committed with the intent to defraud over a long period of time, 
And this type of fraud where we talk about compromised PII, in compromised PII, the, the fraud is committed very rapidly. But fair to say that most every bank in the U.S. can be victimized by this type of fraud. So you gave some estimates, Greg, for the amount of losses that we could see related to first-party fraud next year. But could you talk specifically about sleeper fraud? How much money would you estimate has been lost so far to sleeper fraud? Again, the problem here is that we know that first-party fraud, of which sleeper fraud is a subset, is estimated to be about $28 billion next year. What happens here is because, again, by definition, sleeper fraud is a type of fraud where the bank doesn't even know that it is fraud until at some point after the account has been charged off. So the short answer is, is that it has been very difficult for financial institutions to truly estimate the impact other than to know that this kind of fraud where they refer to it as a straight, it will go from the point where the transaction has been charged to the account or the check has been written to the point where the account is charged off. It goes straight through. There's never a point of contact and seldom is there ever a payment. That is one condition that we're looking at right now to help the banks estimate the true nature of sleeper fraud. There are a couple of internal conditions that exist when coupled with analytical models that will help us identify a true sleeper fraud from a stolen or a lost card or some other type of fraud. So unfortunately right now, um, throughout the market, no one has been able to put a real good estimate in this type of fraud. Yes, you make some good points, Greg, because again, it's hard to have a good handle on exactly how much money is being lost, how many institutions have been impacted, how many accounts have been compromised, because the banks are having a hard time even detecting some of these events. You know, I'm, I'm curious to know if this has been something that's been out there in the market for the last five years. Are there other security firms or researchers that have identified similar trends? Actually, there have. I mean, there's been a lot of attention focused on this particular issue. FICO and Experian, for example, have both commented and written about this type of fraud as well. Um, one of the reasons that we're looking at it is because LexisNexis Risk Solutions as a data provider and data linkage capacity has the ability to start to put together all of the types of attributes, if you will, of this type of fraud. And even in some of the testing that we're doing right now, we're seeing a real tight correlation between those accounts that are what we call elevated fraud scores and what happens to those accounts later on in terms of charge-off. You would think that if it was fraud, the bank would be able to indicate it as such and provide that type of a classification. In sleeper fraud, because there is typically no point of contact with the card member or the customer, the bank immediately tends to put it in through a collection workflow. And because it goes through a collection workflow process, it is not identified as a fraud and so it goes directly to charge off. What we're seeing in some of the analytics that we're testing right now and studying is that many of the accounts that have these elevated scores wind up in charge off. And the bank typically says, hey, look, you know, we've got an increase in our charge off rate when in fact there's an increase in this type of sleep before charge off. So Greg, what should banking institutions be doing to help address this trend? 
Well, there's a couple of things, and I think that's probably one of the most important aspects of sleeper fraud is what should the banks be doing. We're looking at a couple of things. One is they need to define the problem. They need to identify within their own organization what sleeper fraud is. And as a result of that, they need to leverage the analytics and use the analytics available to them to base a strategy. There's enough of information, and I believe, in the market right now, especially from various analytical and data sources that will at least help them directionally, and that's an important term because directionally means without any single data provider having the ability to provide to a certain degree of certainty that this is a sleeper fraud. They can at least directionally provide identification to accounts that have an elevated score or value to indicate that there's something that needs to be reviewed. So really what the banks need to start doing is building a process, one where, they're, where the possibility of this type of fraud is identified. Two, they need to start extracting those accounts from the collection workflow, and there's a, a P&L impact to that. And then once they extract the accounts that are suspected of being sleeper fraud, divert them to a specialized review process where outside of the normal uh, collection review, these accounts can be reviewed as potential fraud. And I think probably the most important part is in using the analytics so they get to know what the unknowns are. And what I mean by that is that sleeper fraud is by definition unknown to the bank. Analytics and data providers can give them a stronger sense of what is known about that account so that they can look at it through a different lens. And that's really what we're talking about here. Because of the fact that most sleeper fraud is committed on accounts of good standing, accounts that have been opened for a year or two, and then all of a sudden it is used in the commission of a fraud, the balance is basically generated to the point of the entire credit limit, there are some internal things that, that happen that the bank should be aware of. One is to look at accounts that have been open for a while where there's a first payment default after the statement is sent. The other is when there's return mail and point of uh, contact has been disconnected. So in other words, the phone numbers are disconnected, there's no longer a good point of contact. Those are three signs that internally, either individually or collectively, would point to a problem with the account. Couple that with data and analytics that would provide a higher degree of probability that the issue is more connected to a fraud than it is to some type of a collection problem. And then finally, the other is to start looking at the accounts that have gone straight to charge off from the point of the transactions to the point where the account is written off by the bank. Those accounts, those that are referred to as straights, should be reviewed to determine both from an analytical perspective as well as a process perspective, what could be done differently within the bank to identify and or prevent these types of fraud. Greg, what about getting customers more involved or more active in monitoring their accounts? Because with so much breached information out there, it's obvious that there are challenges here, right, for banking institutions when it comes to authenticating users, you know, verifying the accounts. What more could they be doing to get their customers involved here? A couple of things, and that's a great question. One is that Customers really need to be aware of giving information over the phone. That's number one. Number two, they need to protect 
their own personal identification and information. Having said that, a lot of these data breaches take the customer's awareness and the customer's ability to protect their own information out of their hands. Again, with the extent of the data breaches that have occurred throughout the U.S. just over the last few years, we're all basically, to a certain degree, a victim of that fraud. So be aware of where your information is going and what's happening with it. The other is be very careful about reviewing your credit statements, your charge statements. One of the things that fraudsters will do in this type of fraud is they will probe the account and they open the buy on the account. And what I mean by that is that to see if the account is still in good standing, a lot of these fraudsters will try to obtain a phone order or an online order in order to see if the account transaction will go through. If they determine that they can go through, then they will start to activate the account in a much larger scheme. So watch your statements. Make sure if there are any small purchases on there that you don't recognize bring that to the attention of your bank immediately. Banks should also be helping out in this case because if there's a change of address, phone number changes, social security number changes, credit limit increase activities, all of those should be confirmed with card member or the customer. The other thing is for the banks to be more aware and customers to be much more aware of what's happening with their linked accounts, not only within a particular bank, but throughout the relationships that customers have with other financial institutions. If for example, you're seeing credit limits on a number of your accounts being requested and or confirmed, um, my suggestion would be to start calling your banks to find out why all of a sudden everybody's increasing your limit. Uh, those would be indications that there's something else going on. The key here, again, is to remember that this type of fraud occurs on good customers typically that have been affected by these data breaches and it occurs very rapidly. Once they've probed the account, once they've determined that there's an open to buy, and that the um, reason for changing the, the home address or the phone number on the account is so that the real card member cannot be aware or contacted to be aware that there's been any activity on the account. Normally, that also prevents the bank from contacting the real card member to alert them to the fact that the account has been compromised. So a number of things, primarily one in terms of what the card member or the customer needs to do is be aware of what happens with your accounts and the relationship with your bank. Well, Greg, I'd like to thank you for your time today, and thanks for bringing this to our attention because I think as we look at first-party fraud, it will probably be something that becomes more and more important for us to talk about as we move into 2016. Very good. Thank you. Again, we've just heard from Greg Shelton of LexisNexis Risk Solutions. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.